Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Five, four, three, two, one. Cue music. This is Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Hello again and welcome to Movies First, your weekly dose of entertainment reviews on the internet. My name is Chris Coleman and as always I am joined by Alex First. Greetings to you, Alex. Sir, I have got a... A particular movie that some people are going to cringe at and others are going to love. In America, it's rated R. In Australia, it's rated MA. It's rude. It's crude. It sets out to push the envelope. There's my taste tester, my tempter for you to start things off. So we will start with that when we do the movies first. We also have uh, another film and then two live shows on this week's edition of Movies First. So mixing it up a little bit. But Alex... I don't quite know how to get to this, so um, let's just start a sausage party. We shall do that. Yes, absolutely. A Savaloy to delight. 89 minutes in duration, and I'm talking about an animated feature from the warped minds of Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg and Jonah Hill. Imagine the trio. Language full on. From the outset, it is rampantly sexual with these cartoon snags representing penises. And the packeted rolls vaginas. Yeah. Sounds like family entertainment, Alex. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then some big voice cast, some of Hollywood's biggest names, Rogan and Hill, of course, Kristen Wiig, Salma Hayek, James Franco, Edward Norton, Michael Sarah, Paul Rudd, Bill Hader, Danny McBride. That's to name a few. So obviously you don't get involved with these guys unless you know what you're in for. The movie's primarily set in a grocery store named Shopwells, in which the food and other items on the shelves are given human proclivities. Of course they are. So each individual morsel and packaged good simply longs to be bought and taken to what they call the great beyond, namely the shoppers' homes. Never in their wildest imaginations do these items envisage being cut torn, sliced, diced and masticated. Rather, they regard being purchased as their first taste, if you pardon the pun, of Nirvana. You've got Frank, who's a packaged sausage. And the packaged sausage is in love with a bun named Brenda, who's in a pack on the shelf alongside Frank. One day their wish is granted when they're both the chosen ones. But things quickly turn from sweet to ugly after a honey mustard jar that was returned to Shopwells jumps out of the shopping trolley containing Frank and Brenda because he has borne witness to the great beyond <laughs> and panics. <laughs> now, who comes up with this stuff? Boy, oh boy. It really is out there. That is merely the starting point. Beyond that, we have racial warfare between breads. One bread is named Sammy Bagel Jr. (laughs) And the other, Lavash. (laughs) 
Very clever. Mm. There's a guacamole gangster. And there's a lesbian taco. Of course there is. Yes, among all sorts of colourful characters. And many will undoubtedly regard it as sick, this movie, and a bridge or many bridges far too far. Then there'll be those who'll see it as highly imaginative, a creative step off the pier, if you like. In the reviewer's screening that I attended, there were frequent peals of laughter from some and deathly silence among others. One thing I can say, Chris, it has shock value. I bet it does. I yeah. bet it does. Can, can I ask a question at this point? You, you said before, where do, where do you, this is the idea for this stuff come from? I'm just wondering, because I've been looking after my grandson a bit lately, he mm. loves Toy Story. Now, think back to the original Toy Story. There is a bit where uh, Woody and Buzz wind up in a vending machine, a claw machine, at yes. the pizza restaurant, and they get taken out. And, of course, the, the little three-eyed alien creatures they live to be taken out of the machine before they're taken away by the evil Sid. Is it possible that someone's seen that and developed this whole film from that one idea? Interesting conspiracy theory. Of course, perhaps that is the case because apparently it took some time to get the studios to agree to do this. No. No. Yes, I was going to say. Well, I give it far more plaudits than I did another unique but damn awful Rogan and Goldberg vehicle. That one came out in 2003. This is the end. That was the name of that movie. By the way, the pair, I'm talking about Rogan and Goldberg, has been responsible for... Superbad and Pineapple Express, so they like working together. But if I'm comparing it to another more obtuse adult animated feature, this time stop motion that came out last year, namely Anomalisa, from the vivid imagination of Charlie Kaufman, I reckon Anomalisa takes the points. But I still regard Sausage Party as wickedly subversive, notwithstanding the fact that it seriously overplayed the F-bomb. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like bad language, you are going to struggle with this one. You also have to have a broad imagination and don't mind sexuality among cartoons. So, you know, that's, that's <laughs> fine, you know, to each their own. And I, I do think it's very, very clever. Directed by Conrad Vernon, he did Monsters vs. Aliens, Shrek 2 and Madagascar 3. It is rated MA in Australia, R in the United States, for very, very good reason. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10, though, for the reasons that I have stated. I have one other question before we move on from Sausage Party. Uh, Mm. uh, When I haven't seen a film that you have seen, I often go to uh, IMDb and I look for the plot keywords just to get an idea as to what, what may be in it. Uh, 23 plot keywords for this movie listed, including sausage, bread, potato, lavash, bagel, hot dog, food, liquor. Uh, There is coarse language and there is also tricked into lesbian sex. I can't say I've seen that terribly often and especially not in a film nominally about foodstuffs. Exactly. So it says it all. I don't need to add to what you've already described and I just warn you that if you go in there you need to sort of expand the mind or allow the movie to expand your mind because undoubtedly it will. <laughs> seven, I, I seven out of ten. Not say too much. I mean, you know, it's kind of like <laughs> if you... You can get virtually anything online these days. So no, I, can you? I, I, I suppose I, I have never looked at, uh, shall I say, 
cartoon internet pornography. So I don't know whether I can compare this to that, but it's very suggestive, shall we say, Sausage Party. That's probably as far as you want to go. And there is cleverness within it, but I, when it starts, when they start using the F word, and they even use the C word, when they start doing that to excess, I don't think that's necessarily clever. And I don't get me wrong, I know that a lot of young people speak like that, but that's probably the bit that perturbed me a little bit, to be honest. I, and don't get me wrong, I, I can swear with the best of them, but really, it, it, I mean, I'd love to count how many there are. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the rampant sexuality of, um, of I'll never look at a sausage the same way again, nor will I look at the bun the same way. I'm not even talking about that. <laughs> Uh, I was going to move on, but you've brought up... We've sort of ventured into this discussion about bad language in movies, and there are some movies that do it extraordinarily well uh, for comedic value. And I'm thinking back now to to Kick-Ass. Yeah, and I agree. Where, where you have a girl who is 10 or 11 drop probably the strongest swear word possible... But it worked so well in context, and because of the shock value, you actually, or most people, actually got a laugh out of it. So if you do it too much, it actually doesn't. It actually minim- lessens the effect, and you, and you reduce the you reduce the comedic value, don't you? Well, you do to an extent, although because they don't overuse the c word, that still has incredible shock value. But I just thought of schoolyard antics and guys teetering or tittering, and yeah, it just. Yeah, it, it just sort of, that's the one thing. And, and bear in mind that reading about how they put this together, they were constantly pushing the envelope, then pulling back, then pushing the envelope again. And it's it's kind of, if they're, you know what it's like when you get together with your mates and it becomes, oh, I caught a fish this big. No, mine was even bigger than yours. Yours is bigger than mine. It keeps on going. And I I just sort of wonder what the arbiter or who the arbiters may be to sort of say, well, no, take another look at that, and whether they would anyway, because I mean, the, this movie will make money. Oh, I've got undoubtedly, no undoubtedly. I, I have no idea what it costs to put together, but it will make money. And and it, there's not too many films that I can compare it to. I mean, they don't they don't do these sorts of movies every day, and I reckon the I mean, this is going to appeal to younger people I, there's no no question in my mind and, and people that like animation and things of that nature as well will will go along and see it and as i say i've i've seen these guys do very bad movies and i've seen these guys do very decent movies and this probably sits at the the better end of the spectrum uh, most Pixar animated movies cost about $100 million to make. This cost the filmmakers an estimated $19 million. That's in American dollars. So it yep. will indeed make money, unlike, I see throwing in a piece of trivia that I stumbled on during the week, unlike the uh, re- uh, reboot of Ghostbusters, they reckon it is going to wind up losing money. And mm-hmm. therefore, even though we were all set by the ending of that, at the very end of the credits, for a sequel, highly unlikely, I'm being told, the sequel of the reboot of Ghostbusters. Yeah, and they were originally going to do it with guys. They decided to do it with girls. I'd like to think it's not the girls. It has something to do with the script. I I think Kristen Wiig was very good in this one. But still, 
it's it you know I said this to you the the original you didn't enjoy the original like I I, did. I, I enjoyed the original but like I said I go, you, if you go back and watch the original now you suddenly you, it it just it's it, it for mine it doesn't s- still hold up after thirty years unlike say Beverly Hills Cop by which is a similar vintage. Yeah, I mean, look, I I haven't done that. I have done that with a few movies. If you see Monty Python today or if you see, well, if you see Faulty Towers, that's probably the best example. I reckon it's very, very funny today. Yeah, it still stands up, absolutely. It does, and my son is a big, big fan. I remember him seeing it as a teenager and, and laughing just as loudly as I did. I think that's fantastic. If you can get your comedies to do that. Well, when Harry met Sally... Okay, yes. another example. I mean, I think that's one of the finest romantic comedies that I can think of, right? It really is. I mean, it's just... And Sleepless in Seattle is another example. They're exceptional, though, aren't they? And, see, the problem is that Ghostbusters had such a great reputation and you just sort of wonder, like, they, they remake movies, they remade a Hitchcock movie literally frame for frame. Mm. Why would they bother? You know, I mean, I can understand, all right... You've got somebody in the now generation who'll say, well, I don't want to see a movie that's 20 years old. Well, okay, but some movies, like The Bird stands up and it always will stand up mm. because it's so special. Yeah. And Psycho stood stood up. The remake of Psycho was awful. Yeah. It was, was okay, but it wasn't. Again, I watched the original Psycho just before seeing the remake. You do the two of them back-to-back, you realise that, that the remake really does have some issues. Exactly. And, I mean, why redo it, you know, frame for frame? It mm. just doesn't make sense. Exactly. But let's move on to The Clan, which is a movie on limited release, and it shouldn't be in the sense that it's a very, very interesting story and well done. 108 minutes, MA-rated in Australia, but... Based, as I say, on something that actually happened, incredible story of an Argentine family, the Pachillos, in the early 1980s that made its living from kidnapping and murder. And they live in a typical family home, in a traditional neighbourhood. To the outside... So not nice people other than the fact that they kidnap and murder people. Gotcha. Oh, if you overlook that, I'm yeah. sure you really like them. You'd have them over for a barbecue as long as, you, know, as, long as you had armed yeah. guards or something, yeah. Well, to the outside world, a devoted husband and father, Archimedes, the patriarch, heads and plans the operations. Alejandro, his eldest son, is a star rugby player at a prestigious local club and actually a member of the national team for a while. Supposedly a picture of the perfect gentleman, Alejandro, the son, gives in to his father's will and identifies possible candidates for kidnapping who were chained up and held in the basement of the family home. Alejandro's popularity shields him from suspicion. To varying degrees, all members of the Pacheo family, father and mother, three sons and two daughters, are accomplices in this dreadful venture as they live off the benefits of the large ransoms paid to victims' families. All this takes place during the final years of the Argentine military dictatorship and the start of the return to democracy. Written and directed by Pablo Trapero, the film captures the look and feel of the times magnificently. Further than that, the extent of the corruption that existed is staggering, appearing to be all-pervasive for a considerable period. Simply hard to fathom that the Pachillos could get away with their nefarious acts for as long as they did. What immediately strikes you is the ruthlessness, the single-minded focus of Archimedes, the father who manipulates his family to fall into line. 
His expression rarely changes as he goes about his business of extortion while professing a deep-seated love for his family. As for Alejandro, although he's most uncomfortable with some of the developments, he doesn't rebel. He doesn't run away. Clearly, the noose is tightening around the family. Just a question of when they'll be caught. Mother Epiphania is quite an interesting one. She's a teacher, a dutiful wife who turns a blind eye to the goings-on. My biggest criticism of the clan concerns the subtitles. Much of the... <laughs> Hang on, hang on. <laughs> it's a movie about people who get kidnapped and killed and your biggest criticism comes from the subtitles. Correct. You've got it. Much of them white on a white background. Ah, ah problem. So on occasions they all but disappeared and I found that very frustrating because I was so caught up in the narrative. <laughs> It's an extraordinary story. This actually happened. I went after the movie. I immediately got home and went onto the internet and found out about the Pachillos. And, boy, is this an accurate representation. It's extraordinary. You, you need to do it. P-U-C-C-I-O-S. You've got to go along and see the clan. I just oh, shook my head in disbelief. And why hadn't we heard about them? Uh, uh, well, because we, we don't we don't hear about a lot of things that happen in Argentina. Would be my would be my guess. Oh, true, and not just in Argentina, but in many African nations as well. Yeah, this is as a news journo for for many years. When I was in newsrooms, I had to make judgments about what made that next bulletin, and you know whether that be radio or TV or whatever it may be. It's always a very difficult juggling game because if five people plunge to their death in the UK, you're going to run it. What happens if 15 people plunge to their death in outer Guatemala? Yeah, it, 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 is, it is interesting it, news, Vat, the, the, the editorial process that goes into making those decisions. Yeah, I mean, it, it probably, well, it won't get a run. So it has to be quite extraordinary, but I would have thought a family that made its living from kidnapping and murder should have been known about here, especially because they continued it for as long as they did. But... I mean, that's the beauty of movies. They, they take you, they transport you to places that you, you're not even aware of. And often fact is far stranger than fiction. I, I like movies that are based on fact when they absolutely floor you. I wish, honestly, that this didn't happen, though, because it's a dreadful, dreadful tale of somebody just using people in the most abusive of ways for the sake of money. Right? It's terrible. So it's called The Clan, and I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. 7.5 out of 10. And just uh, by way of further validation for this film, in its home territory of Argentina uh, at the Argentine Academy Awards, it, was nom it had 12 separate nominations, including not one but two up for Best Actor from the same film. You don't see that often, so obviously a very powerful tale, well acted. The Clan, limited release, might be one that you need to keep an eye out for uh, on a digital service like, such as Netflix down the track as well. You're listening to Movies First. Chris Coleman and Alex First. We've done the movies, and now we're on to the live show, and it's a show that both Alex and I have seen in different iterations. Uh, the current iteration of, of Rolling Thunder Vietnam is just finishing its Australian tour, but it is set, uh, if all goes well, for bigger things, including potentially a trip to the United States, Alex. So what did you think of it when you saw it all those years ago? Uh, well, to be honest, it's one of the greatest 
concerts that I have ever had the good fortune to witness. I, I saw it twice in two days. I loved it that much. I really, I, I would have loved to seen it again and again and again. It was only in Victoria, I think, for one night this time at a much bigger venue. Originally, I saw it at Hamer Hall and the acoustics in Hamer Hall were just magnificent. Powerful, moving, concert drama, evocative, stirring production. So it, it really does showcase some of the greatest rock songs ever produced against a turbulent backdrop. And it is called Rolling Thunder Vietnam, Songs That Defined a Nation. And we've got Steppenwolf, we've got Joe Cocker, Buffalo Springfield, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Gladys Knight, Billy Thorpe, Rolling Stones, Curtis Mayfield. That's just a few of them. And it brings to the stage when I saw it a new generation of young musical talent. Who were the performers when you saw it? Now, if you remember Australian Idol a few years ago, a young guy called Wes Carr did particularly yes, well in Australian yes, Idol. He, he was in, the, in this, in this uh, tour. He was very good. Ben Mingay played the American soldier in this. Uh, the star of the show on the male side of things was Tom Oliver. He plays young Johnny. And I, 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 amazing performance from him right at the end of Bridge Over Troubled Water that had ne barely a dry eye in the house. Uh, William Ewing plays the, the, the fourth male uh, part in the role. Caitlin Spears and Kirby Lunn are the two females. And in Kirby Lunn, there is an incredible voice uh, and someone who I think is a name you should just be writing down to keep an eye out for in future musical-based numbers because she is an absolute star on the rise. I was lucky enough to have both her, uh, both the female roles, uh, Kirby and Caitlin, and Tom Oliver in the studio with me a couple oh, of days before it opened. Special. That is Look, it's based upon extensive research, mm. actual letters, first-hand interviews with Vietnam War veterans, and the stories reveal strained and loving relationships, the danger of combat, the rise of the anti-war protest movement in the late 60s and a bittersweet homecoming. The writer is Bryce Hallett and he says the deeply personal stories have largely sprung from face-to-face -face interview with Australian soldiers who lived in the area. So they, they spoke to the people who'd been there, who'd been in Vietnam. He wanted the monologues between songs to be truthful and spare. Most of the songs in this show are essentially anti-war protest songs that convey the rhythm, the spirit and the mood of the times. So you get Magic Carpet Ride by Steppenwolf. you got Fortunate Son by Credence. Most people I know think that I'm crazy, Billy Thorpe. John Young's The Real Thing, All Along the Watchtower from Jimi Hendrix, Joe Cocker's The Letter, Alan Green's Black Magic Woman, signature song Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf, Nowhere to Run by Martha and the Vandellas, Gladys Knight's helped me make it through the night. That, that was only the first act. And then there was a 20-minute interval, couldn't wait to get back to it, and then you've got Credence's stirring run through the jungle, opening proceedings in the second act, Buffalo Springfield chiming in with, for what it's worth, Edwin Starr's War, that was amazingly powerful, Curtis Mayfield and People Get Ready, Young Bloods Get Together, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, Painted Black from the Rolling Stones, Roberta Flax killing me softly with his song, The Animals, We've Got to Get Out of This Place, before finishing off with Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Waters, which reached deep into my soul. I thought it was absolutely extraordinary. And I saw it in 2014, and at that time, Tom Oliver was the one who was one of the most talented there. Wes Carr, you're right, he was there as well. So a large number of the names that you've mentioned, 
Will Ewing, a graduate of the National Theatre mm-hmm. of Melbourne. Th- there was a five-piece band when I saw it. Same number? Same number, five-piece band. So you've got a, you have a drummer, uh, three guitarists and a keyboard player. And, again, and, it, it, and set up on stage, but yes. not, not in an obtrusive way. Uh, and for mine, again, it just added to the effect of the show yep. Uh, yep. that it was... Uh, the closest thing I could think to remember remember a few years ago there was this uh, real passion or real craze to do musicals shows that were better known as musicals say Jesus Christ Superstar but to do them uh, in the arena setting yes it, it was it was like that but not as a spectacular event it was like that as as a as a proper uh, tribute to to the, the the Vietnam forces well, narrative concerts have become very, very popular in recent years, and I've gone to see many of them, and the band is typically on stage in a situation like that. The production company that do three shows a year at Art Centre Melbourne, they always have a full orchestra on stage. But t- traditionally, tribute shows like this have a smaller number, but the band is always excellent. And they were, by the way, the director, I'm just curious as to whether it's the same director, David Berndhold was the one who directed the Melbourne show when I saw it a number of years ago, now a couple of years ago. Same director, or you're not sure who directed yours? I, I have it in my notes. I'll get to it. No, that's fine. And David Berthold, almost 70 productions to his name for most of Australia's major theatre companies, as well as in Germany and London's West End. I don't know what you thought, but I, I reckon it was a brilliant, brilliant night of musical theatre, simply awesome, inspirational and spine-tingling Without doubt, one of the best put-together shows I've had the good fortune to attend. Musically, it was magnificent, simply big voices from young talent. And together vocally, what was on offer was sensational. The show had massive atmosphere from the get-go. It combined humour with drama and pathos, made your chest swell with pride at the sacrifices made by the diggers who went over and fought for Australia in Vietnam, made you want to weep at the senselessness and mounting loss of life. I reckon the producers hit just the right note between evoking raw elements of the conflict and traumatising those who paid to see it, even bringing back the nightmarish memories to the the vets who are in the audience and whom one of the performers actually paid tribute as part of the show. And as I say, I saw it twice on both the Friday and Saturday night in August of 2014, and and then it toured the country. I, I hope it comes back again for many, many years to come because this is a show that needs to be seen and I, I just thought it was brilliant. What about that, you? That's for sure. David Berthold is indeed still directing that, uh, still directing Rolling Thunder Vietnam on this uh, 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 revival tour, if you like. As I said, they're hoping to gear this up for a tour to the United States and I think it will be an absolutely mind-blowing success over there. Uh, the musical director is Chong Lim, uh, yes. who, who was with the John Farnham Band for years and years. Uh, and uh, that, again, gives you an indication of the professionalism of the musicians. The other thing, and I don't think we've mentioned it, Alex, is the staging. Uh, in addition to the band, the small band yes. being on stage, there were five gigantic screens uh, hung from, the, from, from the, the ceiling behind the stage upon which uh, images and letters and statistics were being projected at various parts of the, of the program, which just added to it. And my other question, and I know you said at the start this is one of the best live shows you've ever seen, I can't think of a time in a long time that I've been to a live show where the standing ovation was so loud and so prolonged at the end Mm -hmm. that the cast came out for not one, but two encores. Yes, that that, that as well. And Chong Lim was 
was a musical director when I saw it too. It just is the measure of what we're seeing. What would you give it out of 10? You can't give this under a 9 out of 10. I just, yeah. I, I'm sitting here thinking, can you give it a 10? For mine, there were a couple of times where the, the, the miking wasn't quite right. Where because they use a combination for they have the, they have the headset mics for speaking and they have the the handheld mics for singing. There were a couple of occasions there where the, the levels were just a little bit off and you, and you lost some of the vocals in there. It's a minor technical thing. I would be giving this an easy nine to nine and a half out of ten. And I gave it a nine and a half. I, I thought it was almost perfect. I, I didn't have issues. I didn't have technical issues at all when I saw it and. I gladly would go back and see this four and five times. It's that evocative. So, folks, if you get a chance to see it now, if you get a chance to see it in any any place, if you're overseas and see it, just, just go along. Rolling Thunder Vietnam, really, really special. Absolutely. And a couple of minutes to wrap up on Shadowland, Alex. What is Shadowland? Well, it's by a group, and I might mispronounce their name, but they're called... Oh, it's so difficult because it's foreign language. Pilobolus or Polobolus, right? Pilobolus. I'm not even going to have a go. So wherever yeah. you go, we'll, well, we'll they just were go founded with it. In, they were founded in 1971, and the name Pilobolus is derived from its biological namesake, meaning a phototropic fungus that thrives in farmyards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I suppose well, everyone's got to start somewhere. Yeah, that, yeah. I was going. Well, it's actually developed a repertoire of more than a hundred choreographed works, and this is touring the country, Shadowland. Remarkably adept, clever, enchanting tale of illusion and dance, and they are an internationally acclaimed troupe. Palopolis. They, they, there's circus elements involved in this as well. Now, as the first theatrical event of its kind to tour the globe, and that really is saying something. It's an 80-minute show without interval incorporating multiple moving screens of different sizes and shapes. It's a performance that merges projected images with front-of-screen choreography. The story is a surreal experience of a young girl's sensational world as she comes of age. Created in collaboration with the lead writer of the popular animated series SpongeBob SquarePants, Stephen Banks, it's dramatic and comedic. Set to a rhythmic original score by American musician producer and film composer David Poe, whose poetic work ranges from ballads to hard-driving rock numbers. The movements on stage emerged from intense periods of improvisation and creative play, and they combine modern dance with high-energy, fast-paced multimedia innovation. Now, Pilobolis is known for its collaborative choreographic process and a unique weight-sharing approach to partnering and sculptural creations. It discovered this new medium for playing with lightness and dark when it developed ads for Hyundai and then performed at the Oscars in 2007, creating images of the films nominated for Best Picture. So a little bit more detail about Shadowland. It's nighttime. In a small house on a small street, a teenage girl prepares for bed. She longs for independence, but to her parents... She's still a little girl. With nowhere for her thoughts to go but into her dream, she falls asleep only to wake to something lurking behind her bedroom wall, her shadow. The wall of her room suddenly starts to spin, trapping her on the other side. Unable to escape, the girl sets off on a journey of discovery, going deeper and deeper into shadow land, looking for a way out. 
strange creatures appear along the way, at once comedic and evil, threatening and seductive. Crazy chefs try to cook her in a soup. Hand monsters threaten to crush her. She's transformed into a dog, and a centaur finds a way into her heart. Shadowland has the fluid logic of a dream, the grace of an acrobatic dance, the humour of a cartoon, and the heart of a love story. Nine performers ensure the thrills just keep coming with their highly imaginative work, both beautiful and intriguing, a sublime combination of art forms. To add further fuel to an already intense fire, they finish the show with shadow play set to two of the most popular songs ever conceived, transporting us from New York to Aussie shores. The audience is in raptures. Shadowland is without peer, an exceptional, very, very special night of entertainment. At the State Theatre at the Arts Centre Melbourne, touring regional Victoria, Brisbane, Canberra, Sydney and Adelaide, having already played in Perth. And it is called Shadowland. It gets an eight to an eight and a half out of ten. Sounds absolutely fascinating. And I believe the theatre company behind Shadowland are already working on Shadowland 2, if it hasn't already premiered in uh, uh, Europe, but I believe that it is not too far off. So there's something else to, to keep an eye out for down the track. Exactamundo. So very, very different show. And I say that because there were young people, young kids there and you know, transfixed to what they were seeing on stage. And there were older people, of course, as well. And so generationally, because it's all about shadows, most of it shadows, that there is some sort of acrobatic stuff in front, it's going to appeal to a lot of people for a long, long time. There we go. Wide variety of things today. Sausage Party and the Clan at the Movies, Rolling Thunder Vietnam and Shadowland on stage. And Alex First, always fun to talk about entertainment with you. We'll do it again in seven days. Sounds great, Chris. Cheers now. You've been listening to Movies First with Alex First and Chris Coleman. Subscribe to the full podcast at Audioboom, Stitcher and iTunes or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.